Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are taking some words and we're saying, hey, what if those words were a beautiful visual landscape interpreted by us through words? (laughs) And if you don't want our interpretation, go read books for yourself, man. We're trying to give you a fun way to never read again, but still know some stuff. And if you like that, I'm so happy you're here. And if you like that so much, you wish you were seeing it in person. Well, this is our last episode before we come to Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul. I'm so excited. We are flying out, I think, tomorrow morning from when you're hearing this episode. It's going to be really great. If you're in Chicago, you might meet my parents. And I cannot promise whether or not they will let you out of a conversation. Anyway, we are also coming to Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Nashville, San Francisco, and Denver coming up soon. I am truly so excited. We've also got a pretty fun announcement coming next week or the week after. What is it? I'm not telling you now. I'm just trying to build anticipation. Meanwhile, in this current day, Claire, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? The internet has some good ideas. Oh. I've taken two things from TikTok that I actually stand by and will share with the class. Is one of them like a two-ingredient pie? Oh my God, did you just see that recipe for Sprite pie? Yes. (laughs) I cannot (laughs) confirm or deny that Sprite pie is real or delicious, but I'll try it out and let you guys know. One is I saw online that a good idea for sharing info with like wedding party people is in a shared notes app. And I think that that is a successful thing. I've done it. It works. I like the notes app that I got. Oh, yeah. I should actually ask you, how do you feel about the notes app as opposed to having like a giant group chat with 12 people in it? It's nice that there's a place you can go and have all your shared info, right? Totally. I would recommend it for anything I'm doing with my parents right now to keep us on top of wedding planning. Anything you have where there's a group of people and the group chat will get muckied. I recommend a shared notes app because it's a place where you can go and things can change, but everyone can have the core information always there without having to scroll. I feel like group chats have like lost all meaning for me. Group chats have become the Facebook invite of 2023. Do you agree? Do you remember when it used to be helpful to have all of your events on Facebook and you knew where you were going for a birthday party and now it is like at some point it just became flyer to hell and you're like, no, I'm not going to go to the rap contest for that person I met in the bathroom one time by accident. Stop (laughs) inviting me. Stop cluttering my inbox. I used to miss actual things because there was so much clutter there, especially as like a comedian who's constantly getting invited to the worst comedy shows in the world. Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing that I've tried from TikTok that has been actually quite successful for me is those like peel and stick (laughs) lip stains. I actually got three and I can confirm that I really like the color. And actually, if you're watching the YouTube, I'm wearing one of the colors right now. And they last for like 12 hours. Genuinely, I put one on yesterday at 1 p.m. And it lasted until I went to bed. No problem. That's nice. I feel like it's like a nice alternative to getting your mouth tattooed because people have been doing that. Yeah, I don't know if I need a tattooed mouth. But if you are looking for just a little stain, you heard it here first. I tried it out and it really does work. Because I was considering getting my mouth tattooed. And then I thought this stain might be a better solution. Sometimes don't you just feel like looking ugly? That's my problem with doing anything permanently beautiful is what if I'm in the mood to just look like shit? My like 70% pretty is what I really wish I looked like at 4%. (laughs) I woke up like this. And my 100% pretty really makes me sad because I'm like, wow, is this really just like a few kicks up from what I thought was garbage? (laughs) If you were a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would the title of last week's chapter be called? It would be called, Ashley, you have it too easy. 
That's likable. That's <laughs> likable. It is not likable. It's really bad. And it's not that I have it too easy. It's that I take it too easy. I have this problem lately where because I feel like my life is fairly stop and go, like there'll be a little bit of downtime and then we're on tour for a couple of weeks and then there'll be a little bit of downtime. Can I say that's really only been true once? That was true for three weeks in March. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And it'll be true again for a few weeks in September, but we had like a good six months to stop between the stops and the goes. Okay, but when I was stopped, I was actually leaving every other weekend for a wedding related event. So that was a different type of tour, but a tour all the same. (laughs) That was gone so often. But anyway, so when I'm stopped, I feel like I stop so wholeheartedly and I need to find some sort of fucking balance in my life. I have my weddings tour coming up. It's just a lot of weddings over the course of 10 days and wedding related events. And I'm really excited for it. But because I know it's going to be busy and festive and like exciting, I feel like I've been like, well, I have to rest my body for this marathon event. And I've been doing nothing. I like will look at my calendar and be like, okay, there are things coming up that you should really prepare for. But I'm like, but shouldn't you get some sleep tonight? Because in a month, you'll have 10 days of things. Not 10 days of things. Like five days of things. Yeah. Over the course of 10 days. (laughs) That's what I mean. I take it too easy. (laughs) Someone help me with my productivity. I got really into to-do lists for a bit and I was doing a good job of them. But then I got overwhelmed by them. (laughs) Anyway, I'll keep you updated on whether or not I accomplish a single fucking thing in my goddamn life. That being said, should we get into a very accomplished memoir? Yeah, this was the least relatable thing I've ever read in my life. (laughs) I know. I can't even begin to imagine having this kind of eye for cool and also ambition. We are reading Edward Enninful. A visible man. He is the recently retired, but not really. Like something is happening. And maybe by the time this episode comes out, it'll have all been sussed. But he's being put in like a power position, like a chess piece. Anyway, he was the editor in chief of British Vogue. And he was very much heralded for some cutting edge, boundary breaking and magazine revitalizing covers. And he is a long, revered, and accomplished man in the fashion industry. His actual final cover for British Vogue, his final issue, is the September 2023 cover. It'll be like pretty relevant September 2023 when you're listening to this. Oh, and it's Fashion Month right now that you're listening to. That's why we picked this book. Want to hear a fun fact about how Fashion Week personally ruined my life? Sure. Did you know that my wedding weekend is Fashion Week in New York City? Yes. And did you know that that is why all of the hotels cost three times what they would cost if you had come the weekend before or the weekend after? That's why I'm not staying in a hotel. I was like, damn, New York City hotels are expensive. And I was like, oh, no, just the one day of my wedding. Congratulations. Yeah, it's great for the guests. Anyway, so Edward and in full, let's dive into it. So the preface starts with one of the greatest name drops I've ever seen in a preface. He's going on a walk in Hyde Park, very London boy. And he's talking about how he thinks after years of being asked to write a memoir, he's finally going to do it. I do think we are reading the results of a pandemic boredom. Sure. And also the fact that he had been making a ton of money in the commercial fashion world and he had to cut those bridges because he had taken on this job at Vogue where he needed to be unbiased and the pay isn't as great. But anyway... So he's taking a walk, talking about how he's finally going to do this memoir that he's been asked to do and never felt like doing. 
And his friend goes, well, don't forget to show what a glamorous, incredible, amazing life you have because you are a role model. Yes. He says, we see glamour and swagger. We don't see a struggling black person. Make sure you give us power and success. We need that. And he was like, you know what? Yes, where I've gotten is quite successful, even though it's hard for him to admit that. But where I've gotten comes from who I am. And who I am is somebody who has struggled and been through things. And I need to be honest about who I am. So he said, I'll tell you what, Idris Elba, (laughs) my friend that I went on a walk with. (laughs) I'm going to tell him the whole truth, the real truth. So help me God. And Idris said, you're the editor in chief of your memoir, buddy. I'm not normally given to revealing myself. I'm private by nature, especially when it comes to the difficult stuff. My hope is that I can do something for the future if I tell the story of my past. I've always told young people who asked about my life and career, if I can do it, you can too. It's important to me to inspire them because the world as it is, isn't set up to do that. It's quite the opposite. So this book is for young people. And something I really admired about him and took away from this book is not hating the youths with all their idiotic ideas and instead saying they are the future and they have good ideas, which is not normally how I feel when I meet the youth. I feel like one of the themes of this book is the ways that there are like really great things that happen with innovation and the things that fall off with innovation. Like we do lose connection. We do lose training, but we also gain opportunity. Mm -hmm. So he was born in Ghana to Major Crosby Enninful, who was a member of Ghana's impressive military. And his mother, Grace, who was a dressmaker and a seamstress and incredibly successful. An incredible dressmaker. Apparently, she, like, by the end of their time in Ghana, was sewing dresses for presidents. Yeah. Well, the wives. The wives of the presidents. Girls can't be president anywhere in the world. That's so true. (laughs) And she had a staff of 40 women who worked under her. She had gone to a technical school when she was in her late teens to learn about the technique of sewing. And they literally said to her, there's nothing we could teach you. Just go off and keep succeeding. So that is really, I think, an important part of his story that he was raised by this woman who knew all about fashion and structure and celebrated women's beauty through fashion. And she was very much his idol growing up. His father, on the other hand, was like a very strict military person who believed in rule and order, only wore black and white suits, would come home and scream, grumpy fella. And Edward talks about how he knew from the time he was little that there was a tension between him and his father. And he couldn't put his finger on it when he was young, but he knew like whatever his instinct was about how to act and how to be and who he was, he had to mask as much as he could of that in front of his father. He was also the second youngest of six kids. His family was very high achieving. His brothers were smart and cool and interesting and just the coolest kids in school. His sister was gorgeous. She really was gorgeous. Like stunning. And, you know, did well in school, went off to college in Canada. And then his youngest sister was the favorite because I feel like that's kind of how it works with youngest. (laughs) (laughs) They had a very popular, cool family. And I think it seems like the mother was very warm and encouraged creativity and their passions and their friendships. Whereas their father was very strict, wanted them all to become doctors and lawyers. But luckily he was gone a lot. But when he was home, It was like, stop playing, stop laughing, go home and study, pretend that nothing you've been doing is the truth. When he was around, the party was over. Don't play your father's home was the refrain. However, when he was young, Ghana was going through a lot of governmental unrest. People were constantly getting cooed. And the problem with being in the military is if you were loyal to a leader who then got cooed, got cooed, got his ass cooed, (laughs) you now were in potential danger. 
At one point, he talks about they moved to this house on barracks where up the hill they would execute enemies of the state every couple of weeks. And you could just hear the gunshots. And it meant it was like mass execution day. And this is a child. You just get used to things. But obviously for his mother, that took a toll. He says that he and his siblings got that what was going on was really bad, but like didn't understand the full impact of they were regularly hearing executions. But, you know, the adults knew what was going on and it was not good. So eventually his mother moved them to the coast in a smaller place, but somewhere where she could run her company and they could not move as much and have a more stability. But eventually there was a coup where his uncle and aunt were murdered in their homes. The children were not allowed to play outside anymore. And there became this constant fear that anytime their dad didn't come home, it could be because he was killed by the current regime. So he used to have a lot of freedom running around town. He used to go assist his mom at the dressmaking studio that she had. He would also love to go visit his aunt. She had a hair salon and she would ship in magazines from the West. This is where he first got a taste of magazines. He would run over to his aunt's salon, flip through the magazines and just take in the images. And he didn't really understand it yet, but he had this to his core appreciation of women's fashion and beauty. But because of the dangers, he was no longer allowed to leave. It was straight to school and then straight home. There was no more anything. And then his father had to flee to London to try to set up a new life for them there because it was just too dangerous for them in Ghana. They left his mother behind for a year. She had to stay behind to close up her business. And it was heartbreaking for them to leave her. Especially to spend time with their dad exclusively, who they honestly didn't know that well. He was gone so much that they weren't really raised by him. And now all the kids are in London with the dad who can't work because as someone who has come in on asylum, he can't work for three years. And so they're just home with the dad all the time and missing the mom so much. He also lost his creative outlet, which was working with his mother and learning from her. I was transported by the whole experience of the workshop, the colors, the fabrics, the loving attention of my mother and her staff. It lit up my imagination. I'd sit under my mother's cutting table surrounded by scraps of wax fabric and fill my own notebooks with ladies in elaborate dresses like she did. They did love London, though. They thought of London as just like where the pop stars are, especially from what he saw in the magazines that he used to study. There were problems. They got to London and there was a lot of paperwork issues. And as soon as they looked around, they were like, oh, it's just white people. He arrived in the middle of the Margaret Thatcher years. She was bad. In the 1980s, the United Kingdom was heavily polarized. Its racial tensions egged on by the flinty, hairspray-helmeted conservative Prime Minister Thatcher, who was known for going on the BBC and breathily intoning right-wing zingers such as, if we win on as we are, by the end of the century, there would be 4 million people of the new Commonwealth or Pakistan here. People are really afraid that this country might be swamped by people of the different culture. Ghastly. It is a really interesting paragraph or two on the way race was perceived in Ghana versus the way it was perceived in the UK. And it is just heartbreaking reading about the way politicians have like continued to polarize this and it hasn't really changed. If your snack times are boring you to tears, just bland flavors, preservative packed protein bars full of ingredients you have never even seen on this green earth, Chomps are a game changer. They make snacking simple. The tasty meat sticks are packed with mouth-watering flavor and only the best real ingredients. Each delicious Chomps meat stick has the protein your body needs, over 9 grams per stick without any unhealthy additives and zero sugar. They are low-carb, keto-friendly, allergy-friendly, and don't contain any fillers. They're simply made with natural ingredients that you can feel good about. 
chops only sources from farmers who raise animals humanely and farm responsibly, so we're looking out for the environment and our animal palios. Chomp sticks come in nine flavors, so there is something for everyone. Claire is obsessed with the taco seasoned one, and she brought them home for Mac, and he is a picky eater, and he loves them. With thousands of five-star reviews, snackers around the world have satisfied their hunger cravings with Chomps. Even better, you can order online and have them delivered straight to your door. Right now, Chomps is offering our listeners 20% off your first order and free shipping when you go to chomps.com worm. Go to chomps.com slash worm for 20% off your first order and free shipping. That's C-H-O-M-P-S dot com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. He lived in an area called Ladbroke Grove, which he gives so much credit to for helping him become the person he is. Ladbroke Grove was a real melting pot of a ton of different cultures and immigrants. And he compares it to like the East Village, just somewhere where... There was so much individuality and self-expression and interesting new ways of expressing yourself happening all the time. And he was like, it was the place to be to just see and experience and like be on the streets and looking at what the future would look like. All around us were signs of Thatcher's cruel and repressive policies issued under the guise of fighting crime carried out by a particularly aggressive police force. At home, we acted as if we were in Ghana. But when we were out of the house, we were in the UK and the climate of London took getting used to. As September turned into October, November, the weather began getting colder. He hated how cold it was, but otherwise, he kind of loved it. He went to Lillian Bayless Technology School, which he's grateful for because it was very diverse, mostly Black and Southeast Asian. Lillian Bayless is where I first consciously realized that women were my special weakness in a way that felt more important, more nourishing than simply wanting to kiss them like the other boys did. So he's realizing that he has, again, this appreciation for women's clothing, fashion, beauty, that most other people, especially boys, do not have. And he also has an incredible eye that he hasn't even really discovered yet, but it's there. They start going out a lot in high school. I don't know how they're getting one over on their dad. I will say the way he talks about partying when they were in high school, but like coupled with having such a strict dad, how did he not know? I guess he would just go to sleep and you just had to sneak out. I don't know. When you're living in like a two-bedroom apartment with six people... Well, at one point they moved into a duplex and I think that really allowed him some freedom because his dad's bedroom was downstairs. Okay. I also do think when you're living in like a four bedroom duplex with 12 people, it's easy to mask a noise. Yeah. As hungry as I was for knowledge at school, my obsession with style and music was even stronger. Not long after arriving in London, I started hanging around the magazine rack, looking through Vogue and Harper's and Queen, but also Blitz and Smash Hits and Number One All Afternoon. I realized that if I walked in with a crap magazine from home, I could put it down on the shelves and take a new one. So I did that all the time. Finally, his mom arrives in London, which is a welcome relief. But their relationship is never as close as it once was, especially because now instead of having this big dressmaking business with 40 seamstresses under her, she's just kind of working under the table, sewing dresses herself to people they know. She doesn't need his assistance the same way. And just after the time apart, and now he's a little bit older, things are just a little bit more distant. We established a new rhythm in the flat accompanied by the loud clacking of my mother's sewing machine and cousins coming in and out eating Luther's cooking. We'd pop in to say hello to her when we got home from school and my dad would be drinking a Guinness and talking about football. They also have other relatives and acquaintances that come to live with them. One of them is Michael, who lived in the UK now, and he and Edward become incredibly close. They like really understand each other and it does turn out they're both gay. It took me another few years to realize that what we shared was a budding gay sensibility, though Michael knew sooner than I did. 
he stays so close with all his brothers and his older brothers are like these handsome, cool guys who are out learning about the scene, being part of like this new wave of grunge and buffalo styling. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Me either. But his brothers let him join along, which is great for him because he's 14. He's shy. But he has these brothers that'll get in anywhere. They're hanging out with some boy band named Bros, which I've never heard of. But they're becoming part of this cool scene and they are letting Edward tag along. He also develops this really strong sense of his style. He's wearing these tight jeans and cowboy boots and doing his hair in very specific ways. And he starts shaving his head. And then one day on the train, a guy named Simon Foxton sees him and is like, you have a look. He's reading a fashion magazine. Simon is like, that's a guy who cares about fashion. So he gives him his card and is like, call me if you are ever interested in modeling. And he doesn't call for months, but I don't know, in the age before email and internet, I think you could just like get someone's card and seven months later be like, it's me from the train. (laughs) I didn't know it yet, but more than almost anyone else in the world, Simon would change my life. So he starts modeling on projects that Simon sends him on. Simon is with ID Magazine, and ID is just at the forefront of publishing cool shit. They're an indie magazine, so they're not largely funded off of advertising. They're funded off of almost nothing. And then most of the editors and photographers and everyone else who works there take side gigs doing corporate work, styling music videos and album covers and ad campaigns for brands. And brands want to hire them because they're like, well, ID Magazine is the coolest magazine. So if the guy who does styling for ID Magazine can do styling for a Calvin Klein shoot, then Calvin Klein will look cool. Yeah, what you do get from ID is a ton of editorial freedom and the ability to push the envelope. ID prided itself on breaking the status quo, being forward thinking, going to the streets and seeing what people were really wearing and letting the youth shape the magazine. Ladbroke Grove's aesthetic appeal was in its people, cool, crumbling, and sprinkled with just the right amount of crazy. And that is the look that they were trying to translate to the world. So, I mean, he was an incredible person for Simon to find because he was just on the forefront of that space. And he was just so interested in keeping his eyes peeled to the rhythm. So he starts off as a model. It's bittersweet because on the one hand, it's the first time in his life that he sees what it takes to put these images that he's loved his whole life together. And he loves being a part of the creative process. But on the other hand, the only person who really hires him is Simon. So whenever Simon is doing a shoot that he has pitched, Simon is a stylist that he's pitched to ID. He loves using Edward. He loves using Edward's friends. Edward brings his brothers and people he's met sometimes. And he really trusts Edward's eye and opinions. But when he's signed by another modeling agency, he's saying he's constantly getting rejected because the standard is so white and traditional. He also acknowledges that he wasn't that good of a model. Like he has an enormous respect for the power that a model can bring to a shoot. It's not just about throwing the right clothes and the makeup on someone. It's about the energy they exude. And he says he just was not expressive enough to give them what they needed for a truly incredible image. But he starts working as Simon's kind of unofficial assistant. And when you think about it, he has had years of experience helping his mother in her fashion world. So he knows more than he explicitly says in this book. He instinctively knew how to be a helpful assistant on set or styling. And because he was polite, hardworking, respectful, he felt very comfortable asking all the questions he could. And Simon very graciously would answer everything. And Edward really acknowledges that in many ways in his life, he got super lucky with the people he worked with because a lot of stylists are not kind and gracious the way that Simon was. A lot of stylists take pride in kind of abusing their assistants. I mean, like, if you want to be in this business, you better get used to getting pricked and having shit thrown at you, getting screamed at. And he says Simon never treated him that way. Simon answered every single question. And if Simon was unhappy with something, he just said it clearly and you would fix it. 
Yeah, he talks a lot about how it was so important to just be in the right place at the right time. And he got very lucky with the way he ended up in Simon's orbit. ID was the closest you could come to a pure documentary of British youth and their culture tribes. Terry worked frequently with the photographer Mark Lebon, who had a poetic approach to naturalism. He's like 15 years old. and He's hanging out with this group of fashion photographers and models and stylists, Ray Petrie and Simon de Montfort. All these people that were really at the forefront of the Ladbrook Grove scene and ID and this like young, cool London fashion world. He was there just ready to help, ready to meet people working his butt off. So again, he's helping Simon a lot behind the scenes. Simon loves handing him a couple of items and being like, how would you throw this together? You're very young and cool. And he would throw it together and Simon really respected his opinion. And so he's becoming a much bigger part of ID Magazine. Simon, by the way, is the men's lead fashion stylist. So again, his status within ID was elevating his status in the clubs. He and his brothers and Michael and all of his friends would go to the clubs all the time. And they were just part of this movement. His friends are starting to realize their sexuality a bit more. James was gay. Michael was gay. Simon was gay. Rowan was gay. And I was, I don't know, flickering. And then Simon brings him to a shoot in New York City. He doesn't get into the details of how he swung this. I feel like with his dad so strict and pretty unaware of his nightclub slash magazine styling assistant lifestyle, I don't know how he just like left the country. I mean, I think it was all his mother because he talks about when he was 14, he got discovered on the train. He goes to his mom and asks permission to be a model. Yeah. And it takes a couple months of him wearing her down. And then finally she says, yes. So it seems like don't ask, don't tell. If you just don't ask your dad for permission, he can't tell you no. There's like enough kids in the house that if he disappears for a weekend, no one's really aware. So he goes to New York City with Simon for a photo shoot. He'd been edging towards this moment and this trip kind of cracked open the rest of his entire life. He realizes the magazine industry is where he's meant to be. He loves being on set. He loves styling and like working on these projects. And after Simon goes to bed, he goes out to a nightclub that he'd always heard about in New York City. He was so excited to go there. And there he's alone. He doesn't know anyone in New York, in the country, really. And he sees a guy that he thinks is so hot. And he's like, you know what? Just try something. So he goes over. He says, hi. He and the guy make out. And he's like, oh, that's who I am. Okay. Fireworks went off inside me. The whole thing, just as I had found myself in fashion, which was what I wanted to do in the world. Now I was discovering a more intimate terrain. I felt free and scared and excited. I was shot through with pure joy. It was about time. The next morning, he has not slept a wink. And he's just smiling ear to ear. The happiest fashion assistant on set you've ever friggin' seen. This is what's so inspiring about him is this like tenacity and ability to just like ask questions. He talks to Beth Summers, who's the overall fashion editor, and he just kind of like starts writing fashion news pieces for ID. He just kind of works his way into the position by asking and showing up and doing a good job. He was always really good at English as like a subject. He was always a great writer. He said, I wasn't comfortable enough with my own ambition to imagine I could become a stylist myself. But he is working his way there. Again, he's like 15 at this point, maybe 16. So he's a teenager writing more and more. Beth thought he was funny. And so she was like, be funnier in your writing. And he developed a very punchy way of writing. He is a great writer. I really liked this book. And ideas sending him all over the place. They sent him to Paris Fashion Week with like $200 that Simon gave him out of the generosity of his heart. And he's just sleeping on couches, showing up to shows. They just say, go to as many shows as you can, but you don't have to go to all of them, just the cool ones. And he comes back with all these scathing reviews and they're like, all right, buddy, I mean, you could dial it back a little bit. You're only 17. You don't need to be so cynical. 
but they're really just giving him so much responsibility. Meanwhile, his dad is obsessed with him going to, we would call it college. I don't know what they would call it in their country. They have like a goofy little system. A-levels or some shit? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever they have. Anyway, I have another question about magazines and ID specifically, or like indie magazines in general. I don't understand how they could have no income. Like, I don't understand how this is like an intern-operated business. I don't think everybody was an intern. I think he was an intern. I think everybody else was getting paid some, but it was one of those things like when you do an indie movie and you're paid like $600 a day. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it seems like he was paid no dollars a no, day. No, I definitely think he was not paid, but I don't think nobody was paid. Right, but I do feel like if you're sending someone like out of the country, I don't even know that you would pay them, but you would pay for like hostels. Yeah, I think they were t- kind of taking advantage. Yeah, okay. I think part of what they liked about him is that they could pay nothing. Okay. I don't know if you've ever worked in kind of a toxic environment where the glamour of the job makes them think they don't have to pay you. But I can only imagine it was worse in the 80s for a black immigrant, if you can imagine that. Anyway, he's liking the writing, but his passion is in image making. He wants to be a creative director. He doesn't like critiquing other people's work. He wants to be making work. Yeah. Styling and photography to me offered a more interesting seat at the table, even if taking that seat still intimidated the hell out of me. So with Simon and Beth's encouragement, he starts putting together little shoots of his own and he talks about them pretty harshly here. Yeah, he's like, this is what sucked about this one. This is why this one wasn't any good. This one was kind of hack. And I'm like, well, you were 17. Yeah, you were 17 years old working professionally. I think that most 17 year olds were still like gluing photos to fucking cut out dolls. So you're fine. Still, I must have been doing something right since Beth then commissioned me to style a story with the photographer Jason Evans, whom I still model for occasionally. He really specifically, whenever he was given an opportunity, even from the time he was 17, it was always about bringing it back to the people he knew, black girls in their school outfits, existing the way that he knew his friends to exist. He really wanted to showcase authenticity. And to him, that was really important coming out of the 80s where he felt like it was so over the top and like tons of makeup and almost like corny models jumping and winking. And he wanted to be like, this is how real people dress every day. Our job is to reflect the now and magazines do not reflect any now I know. So he really took it seriously, even from the age of 17, that like if he was going to be commissioned to do something, what he was going to do was show the world as he saw it and lived it. The old school magazine days sound so fucking cool. It's so awesome how they were able to just spend so much time like conceptualizing and pulling resources and styling a shoot. It turned out so amazing. He talks a little bit about the way like there are just so many pros and cons to the internet era because now you have to have images out every fucking day. Like there has to be new things for people to click on all the time. But also you have all this opportunity. Like there's so much more access to like people and designers and ideas. So around this time, he develops a really interesting way of working that he still uses to this day, which is that Going into a shoot, he will spend days and weeks researching for like eight, 10 hours a day. He'll be pulling photos. He'll be going into the archive. He'll be studying. He does this thing where before he puts together a photo, he creates the character and the narrative. And he almost studies for it the way that an actor would study for a role. Like he does the internal monologue. He figures out who this person is, what their desires are, like what the goal is, everything, all the historical context for the imagery. And then he just goes to sleep. And he says in his dreams, the image will appear to him. And he says if by morning he's woken up and he hasn't had the image delivered to him in his dreams, then that means he needs to keep researching because he hasn't found it yet. But at some point, he will go to sleep and wake up and just see every single image, every single position, every single outfit, the layout completely. It just comes. 
And he says at first he thought that that was like cheating. It gave him imposter syndrome to think that somehow he was just being handed. But finally, somebody was like, no, that just means you're gifted. And also it wasn't being handed to him. He would do like weeks of research. And then he would just like let his little brain figure things out. Also, he's handing it to himself. Yeah. So he finishes college and goes to law uni. Our British listeners, I have nothing but respect for you. However, I won't learn your ridiculous education system. It doesn't make sense to me and I'm not interested. I like our ridiculous education system where nobody learns a goddamn thing and I will never do a tax day in my life. Yeah, but you know what? It goes one through 12. Done. That's true. Anyway, so he goes to law school and he goes with his friend, Steve McQueen. All you need is a fast machine. And he gets up to the door and then he was like, I can't do this. And he leaves. And Steve McQueen in interviews has been like, and then he never went back. But that's not true. He did go sometimes. And then one day, one of his teachers was like, dude, what are you doing? He says it really reminded him of when his mom had gone to school and they were like, we have nothing to teach you. You're already on your path. Just continue with your passions. And this teacher was basically like, why are you wasting your time here if you're like well into what you want to be doing and working hard outside of school? And he says it gave him the permission to go pursue fully what he wanted to be doing at ID. And so he goes home one day and he was lying to his dad for months. His dad would be like, how are studies? And he would just like make up how classes were going. Really, he was working full time at ID. And finally, one day he tells him the truth. His dad freaks out, throws all of his clothes outside the window. There was something about the way he wrote this where he was like, he doesn't understand how much those clothes meant to me. And I'm like, no, any dad throwing all of your belongings out the window is bad. Like, it doesn't matter if you, like, love your shoes because of the aesthetic that you've cultivated or if you love your shoes because you, like, don't want to step on glass. When your dad goes into your room and says you're kicked out of the house and I'm throwing all your stuff out the window. It's, like, equally a slight to people who care about fashion and people who don't (laughs) care about fashion. (laughs) Anyway, so he is freaking out. And I will say, I don't mean to say that this isn't traumatic. I think it is so bad. But he does say, like, four times he's like, my cowboy boots. My cowboy boots were on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, where do you walk with them? And then he goes to work anyway. He leaves his stuff in the ground and goes to work because he has a meeting with Beth and he like doesn't want to miss the meeting. He gets in there. He doesn't know what to do. He's freaking out. He's just been kicked out of his house. And Beth says, I'm leaving the magazine and you get my job. I thought that this meant he would get money now. It seems like he was doing a full time. So Beth was the fashion editor. Yeah. Of ID magazine. And at 18 years old, he got kicked out of the house, went into work and got that job, which is insane. But then I don't know that he made a dollar. It's very unclear if they were paying him at all. It seems like he was making, like you said, a small stipend. And so luckily, Michael's dad was not living in his home at the time. He was back in Ghana. It was a council flat open for maybe three or four months. So they go move in there and they need a place to crash. They don't need a place to live. Because he's working all day, partying all night, coming home, sleeping for a second, and then going back to work. They would sometimes bring back parties. Every time he describes a kitchen, he goes, a beautiful kitchen where not a morsel of food was ever cooked. This job was as much about politics as it was about writing, assisting, or simply styling, and I was a baby. I'd have to act with authority, making creative decisions for the magazine and executing them, corralling people across apartments like design and layout, advertising and marketing. I'd have to say no to top stylists and photographers whose work I admired. There was a culture of permissiveness and creativity around ID. Terry, who was the head of ID, would give photographers creative freedom, but he could also be tough on them. And when he was out of town, as he often was, I'd have to carry out his mandates with stalwarts whose long and illustrious careers preceded my time there. Imagine 18-year-old me calling you up to explain we'd taken another look at your story and that image you were madly keen on sadly isn't going to make the cut. That is crazy. He's 18. And he talks about having imposter syndrome. And I'm like, 
Yeah. Not that I don't think he deserved to be there. I think he had an incredible innate talent. And I think that he worked so hard. And I think he deserves everything he's ever gotten. But for him to be like, I was just worried I was in over my head. That's fair. (laughs) I had the manic energy of someone who had just lost his family and was desperate to create a new one. It's so sad because in the structure of his family system, what his dad said was the law. So his dad kicking him out, sure, he could have made efforts to stay closer to his siblings and his mom for a time. It was very difficult because they were still under the dad's roof where the dad made the rules and seeing him was against the rules. I don't even think seeing him was against the rules. I think he was just proud and he was like, you kicked me out and I'm not coming back because his mom called and said, your dad didn't mean that. You can come back. And he goes, no. I mean, and rightfully so, I understand that he did not want to go somewhere where he felt he couldn't be himself and he was being rejected. But I don't think that there was this explicit from his father, we cannot support Edward. I guess part of me wonders if he writes it that way to be a little bit more sympathetic to his family, because even though he says everyone in my family is very proud, I also think there was a lot of layered pride and shame because of the way he was raised coming into himself and admitting that he's gay and working in fashion when the only acceptable careers are lawyer and doctor. I think that there are a lot of things that he's accomplished so much and he's so proud of himself, but then you like look at what they wanted for you and that's not what you're doing. So there's shame in that. So he's being pulled in a hundred different directions. In order to manage his imposter syndrome, he puts on just a front. He becomes a new character. He says, you know, I've immigrated. I've been in an immigrant family whilst gay. Like I know how to put on a front. Like I know how to fit in in a world and create a persona. So he creates a persona to be this fashion editor, but it's like dividing him internally. I could be the life of the party now, but a piece of me was always elsewhere, sorting through what I had to do the next day. My courage was fueled by drink, adrenaline, and the armor I was styling myself in. He also talks about how at this point he was still pretty chaste and terrified of sex. He would kiss boys and sometimes he would cuddle them, but he was too afraid of sex. And sex just wasn't even a part of his life. I think in a lot of these gay memoirs that we've read of people who have lived through the 80s, a lot of them have had this experience of because they were too scared to be intimate with anybody, it ended up saving their life during the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Which is so sad to think that the people that it almost protected him to be afraid of who he was. When you grow up gay in a world primed to detest you, you often have to grow up twice. There is this class of men who were afraid to give their full selves to whatever world they were in because it wasn't accepted. They weren't afraid. They were rightfully nervous. And because of that, they like couldn't lean into who they were intimately and they dedicated their whole selves to their work. And because of that, they survived the AIDS crisis and excelled in their work. But it's so devastating that you have to like completely put your personal life away like that in order to make it anywhere. Confused and overwhelmed, I held myself apart from others. Once again, work, obsessive, breathless, important, exciting work was there to take me away from anything messy and help me hide away from matters of the heart. All I knew at the time was that I wanted to be well-dressed, to laugh, to make beautiful, interesting, meaningful pictures. I always had a template for hard work in my mother, though I was by now at arm's length from the family. I felt a piece of her spirit in me whenever I focused on the task at hand. I'd gotten into the habit of calling her from time to time to check in. To make things easy, I tried to time it for when I knew my father wouldn't be home. I miss you, she would tell me, shattering my heart for a moment. Then I'd hardened my shell a little more as I threw myself into another 18-hour workday. I was responsible for the entire fashion output of the magazine, not just styling my own shoot. So this is how he ends up becoming so well-connected in fashion. He wants more than anything to be a stylist, but instead of being competitive with stylists and his peers... He needs everyone to come together to make a great issue. So he never is really able to lean into any sort of resentments towards any jealousy because he can't have an enemy when he needs everyone's work to come together. 
He also, at this time, is leaning into doing a lot more styling. And he's so good at plucking people and being like, that's the one. And of course, some of them are already the one by other people. But like he becomes best friends with them, like Kate Moss. They became such good friends. Like he's so good at finding people and putting them in situations that they're not normally photographed in, taking a face that everyone is obsessed with, like the person of the moment, and styling them in a way that the world sees them in a new light. So he's great at putting the next up and coming model on the cover, but even the already established great models who are like a generation above him are now just dying to come in and be styled for an ID magazine cover. He also at this time, I guess, is making very little money and he's young and he's working hard and he's in the middle of everything. So he's living out of all of these kind of like party warehouses. It was very ginger spice. Yeah. He was just like live in these giant warehouses that whoever happened to have money would decorate and make insane and just have parties nonstop. And I think it was probably fun and great for connecting, but it wasn't necessarily healthy to always be working 18 hours a day and then taking the other six hours and doing drugs and partying. Yeah. He was also very aware as a black person in fashion of the way black people were put into certain roles in fashion. And he was very conscious of his position of power and how he was able to put black women on the cover of magazines, not in the situations that they were normally relegated to. And he developed kind of a reputation for it that wasn't always positive, unfortunately, but he did just like continue forth and he's kind of taken over fashion. I never felt any pushback from Terry or Nick over my choices of black cover models. But as I started to hit my stride at ID, a few people around the office would say, oh, another one when they'd see a beautiful black woman on the cover. Yes, another one and another. Meanwhile, Michael, his friend who was a hairstylist, had been working with a makeup artist called Pat McGrath. I kept hearing about her. And then Pat came into my office not long after I got the job on the arm of a stylist called Zoe Badeau. But Pat could have come in with the postman and I would have taken notice. I've only felt this a handful of times in my life, but I knew immediately when Pat turned up that it was destiny calling. Where I still practically spoke in a whisper, she was a bullhorn. She was small in stature, but everything else about her was big. Her eyes, her mouth, her laughter, which was infectious, warm, and constant. She cracked herself up all the time. Slowly, a core gang started to form. Craig and Pat and I started working together on covers and portraits, like one we did of a champion driver I knew from Crystal Palace called Jason Statham. Ever heard of him? Diver. A champion diver. Diver. I thought driver. I was like, oh, Jason Statham was a race car driver. Of course he was. That's what he's always doing in the movies. And the only reason I take time to correct you is because I also made that mistake. And then I read it again and I said, diver. I guess that's why he's bald. Oh, aerodynamic. (laughs) Can I say one other funny part of this book? So at one point he is doing acid and he like has a bad trip and he calls his mom and he says, when I look at the light bulbs, I see the Bee Gees turning into skeletons. And his mom was like, oh no, you've tried vodka. (laughs) And he's like, yes. (laughs) Do you ever wish that you could snap your fingers and have all of your recipe searching, grocery shopping, and meal planning done for you? Well, that is basically Hungry Root. You'll never think about what's for dinner or breakfast or lunch ever again. You'll only be absolutely overjoyed with what's in front of you. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. So you take a fun, short little quiz and Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, how you like to eat, what flavors you like, which kitchen appliances you use, and they will keep your needs top of mind, start building your cart, and send you your groceries and the meals that you can make. Hungry Root will recommend groceries based on your tastes. You can take their suggestions or you can fill your cart with anything you want, including high-quality produce, meats, seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks, sweets, and so much more. And they have seasonal fall favorites. 
I am so excited to try a tasty fall recipe. I will tell you what, I thought that I was immune to the fall flavor buzz. And as soon as the weather struck chilly, I was craving just like a warm grain bowl, maybe a little pumpkin or maple dessert on the side. I can't help it. It's in my blood. Everything Hungry Root offers follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. Spend less time shopping and cooking and more time enjoying the healthy food that you actually love with Hungry Root. Right now, Hungry Root is offering our listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Go to HungryRoot.com slash worm to get 30% off your first delivery and free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. It just seems like they were in this era where like nobody had money but Pat because Pat was taking on all these giant commercial shoots, which is all the, all the money was. But for ID, they're always running on pennies, but just staying up late into the night. And they became this family that they would fight until they got the photo right. And then they would all click into gear. But Pat was the only one who had any money. So she would treat them to like KFC <laughs> while as normally they were just eating whatever like penny sandwich they could find. I think Pat is a billionaire now. I think Pat McGrath Labs sold for like a quadrillion dollars good for her i met her one time when i worked at man repeller she's like the most beautiful person i've ever seen in my life i think really yeah the two people that i've met working in my weird jobs that i was like struck by how attractive they were were pat mcgrath and asap rocky interesting i asked him i was like what is your skincare routine and he was like witch hazel and i started using witch hazel and it didn't make me look beautiful I've always been someone who would do anything in the name of the craft, which meant sometimes I do too much. I mean, this is just a constant theme throughout his entire life. He's just working himself to the bone and he only stops when he has like a legitimate medical crisis. He talks earlier in the book about how he has sickle cell and occasionally he's just ground to an absolute halt by pain in his entire body. And the only thing that can help it is morphine. Yeah. He talks about the different models he worked with regularly. He worked with Naomi Campbell all the time. He worked with Kate Moss. They were great collaborators. He also mentions this model who I'd never heard of called Lorraine Pascal. Lorraine was one of the first big black models of our era. She was on her way to a first name only career when she gave it up to become a celebrity chef and now a shrink, which is probably always her truest calling. That is so funny. I Googled to see if she had a memoir and she doesn't, but she has like seven cookbooks. But if anyone knows her, Please have her write a memoir. I want to read Top Model to Celebrity Chef to Shrink. That's so funny. Imagine having Naomi Campbell as your therapist. (laughs) I'd be like, oh, you've excelled at literally everything you've done, including sitting there and looking beautiful. I'd love to hear your take on my problems. (laughs) They talk about the way that trends have been lifted from black neighborhoods and cultures and turned white for magazines and how he wanted to do the opposite. He said, I want to create a mirror of the world that I live in, which is cool and exciting and innovative. And that is what he's always set out to do with his imagery. He was also at this time not getting consulting work. Fashion's main players were having a far easier time imagining white women stylists fit for the top consulting jobs. I wasn't trusted in the same ways they were or included in the same conversations or seen as the big creative contributor in ways that my editorial work should have made obvious. So he talks about working hard to sort of keep his head down and like stay humble and continue to hone his craft, but resentment was building. I'm still so proud of the work I put out in that period, even if I can still spot the growing pains. I was an integral part of the trove of iconic images that helped change the tone and reach of the fashion industry at the time, though I was growing resentful as everyone else was pulling ahead of me. And okay, I do want to say about this, 
I, I really like enjoy the honesty of it. I really appreciate the honesty of it. But at this point, I believe he's like 24. Yeah. And so I don't know. I understand that he does have like a pretty high powered position in magazine editorial. But to be like, why was I not getting these major gigs? Consider this your college that you skipped. Yeah. You're not ready yet. And maybe he was. Maybe I'm being an asshole, but... No, it's hard to, like, assess the situation when somebody who's so young has so much power, but it does seem like he's, like, not getting paid at all. Like, why can't he afford an apartment? Yeah. It does seem like he's the head of this magazine and yet can't pay rent. Right. And so, like, something is amiss. Something's amiss and he's right to be frustrated by it. And then, of course, he gets his big styling break. He is brought in for a Calvin Klein shoot. And this does end up kind of opening the floodgates. He becomes like Calvin Klein's or CK's. So it's like the young, cool version of Calvin Klein. He becomes their kind of go-to guy for two years. And it was him and Kate and Pat. And it was like the crew. And they had so much fun. And he was making good money finally. Yeah. Like I said, this opened the floodgates for more styling work. He starts getting gigs kind of everywhere. And I think he just kind of immediately becomes rich. I don't know if he immediately becomes rich, but he finally is like getting paid good money. He's getting paid proportionate to his success. Yes. Calvin told me about his view of minimalist luxury and why Kate was a perfect symbol of it. Ah, quiet luxury. Can I say, I wish that they were saying minimalist luxury because that makes sense. That does make sense. I wish that that was the word. He's in New York a lot more because he's been styling so much and he's kind of splitting his time. He's also just getting in with a whole new going out crew. Narcisco Rodriguez, Paul Roland, they're all going out in New York. You know, there's a little self-congratulatoriness here. He's like, as I got to know people better, my shyness fell out and people would say, I didn't know you were so funny. <laughs> One of the things I really loved about this book is when he's like portraying the energy and the excitement of the 90s in fashion, you can like feel it jumping off the page. Like I was excited about fashion and Kate yeah. Moss and like grunge. Him and Andre Leontali, they both have that thing in their book where when you really genuinely love something and like know it, it is contagious. And yeah. when he talks about the collaboration and the respect of the other people who know so much and how exciting it is just to be in this group of people who are all on the rise, it is an exciting thing to be a part of, which I think is so different than a lot of the fashion discourse that you come across a lot, which is so statusy and I know more than you. This feels just so exciting and collaborative. Because it's like saving his life. Do you know what I mean? There is a sense of it's not frivolous. It's so important. While my freelance consulting gigs were getting better and better, I was still hungry to create with the best of the best. To fashion and photography lovers like me, Vogue Italia was the holy grail. And Craig, who was his friend, who was a photographer, but like also kind of his enemy, because when he first went to New York, he didn't recommend Edward for a couple of big styling gigs, but then they became friends again. Craig has an in with Vogue Italia, the editor, Franca. And he sends a pitch that Edward would style and she loves the idea. They shoot it. It goes over great. She's obsessed with it. And then he sees her at a fashion event and he like gets introduced to her and she's like, oh my God, I love your work. And so he's like, oh, if she loves my work. I'll just pitch her directly. And he really gets in with Vogue Italia. While my imposter syndrome was never far away, Franca's confidence in me meant that I could relax a little and lean into my imagination, which was now running wild now that it had an outlet in one of the greenest pastures I'd yet to encounter. So, I mean, when you're working with Vogue Italia, your resources are pretty endless. He finally meets a boyfriend, this guy, Uwe, who is German. And he hopes that Uwe will, like, help him calm down. Uwe is much more zen and he's vegan and he doesn't like to party a lot. But unfortunately, it just creates a divide 
Edward's friends don't like him. He feels unappreciated by them. He doesn't understand fashion and it, it just doesn't work out. He was hoping that Uwe would like stop whatever it is in him that wanted to go party and be out and be drunk all the time. But, you know, that can't really come from someone else. That has to come from within. First of all, he doesn't really get very far into this thing where like Uwe and his friends don't get along at all. And I am curious about that. But he also is like, you can't expect someone else to impose rules on you. And it ended up backfiring completely and creating this contention between them where he felt like Uwe was like judging him for everything he did when that like really wasn't true. But they're able to keep their relationship afloat for way longer than it should have because he's so busy. And they're friends now. Yes. Then everything comes to a halt because his mom has a stroke. She becomes paralyzed in her left side and she is not doing well. He's so panicked about it, but he just doesn't know how to stop from the pace that he's at. I was soul sick, but it would have been unthinkable for me to pause long enough to ask why. I think this is really insightful about his self. He was like, yeah, my life was chaos and everything was falling apart and I was stressed and I was exhausted and I was miserable, but things were going so well and I was so happy with my career. It was hard to separate the two. I mean, I feel like comedians have this where it's like, if I clean up my life and I'm not sad all the time, will I get less funny? Like he thought his creativity was coming from this place of tornado. He ends up working with Dolce & Gabbana, which is a really fun experience for him. Yeah, he starts styling some really cool fashion shows. He's still doing really good editorials, I guess. Okay, (laughs) here is also what was confusing to me. His editor job at ID actually only took up like a couple days a month. Yeah, because he was doing it till the end almost. And yet he was like living in New York City three weeks out of the month. Yeah. And it was confusing because I feel like early on he was working there full time, it seemed, for like a much lower position. And now he was like at the top. I do think that makes sense that the higher you get and the more important you are, that like your name just becomes a figurehead and you just say yes or no, but you're not actually sitting there coming up with ideas, especially if they're not paying you. I'm sure that's why they gave him the job in the first place. Yeah. If it doesn't really pay... So yeah, he's still working at ID, but he's doing all of these styling gigs. And then he buys a house, which is, you know, exciting. It's very impressive. The way you say that, it's so millennial. Like that is like the most insane thing you've ever heard. Can you believe this man who in his 30s, who had been working and was very successful for about 15 years now, would in the 90s be able to buy a three-bedroom home? First of all, I believe it was early 2000s. Okay. Second of all, yeah, he'd been working really hard for like 14 years at this point, but he'd only been getting paid for like three of them. <laughs> it is confusing the way it like just jumps this far, though. He's having these parties at his house. And then he looks over and he sees a guy named Alec and he like feels something shift in him. He's in love. He walks over to Alec, kneels down and puts his hand on his knee and says, are you gay? They start dating. They become inseparable. Alec is much younger than him. He's in college at that point. So their relationship does end up fizzling quickly because his life was chaotic. He like wasn't paying taxes or like filing any of his finances properly. Yeah, he said when you're a stylist, you pay for all this stuff and they reimburse you with receipts, but then also you're getting paid from your agency and you do have to stay on top of all of it. And if you're not good at keeping your receipts, then you're spending like $4,000 on wigs. And if you've lost a receipt, you're not getting reimbursed. So even though he was technically getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, I don't know that he was like seeing all that money and he wasn't being responsible with it. So he hires his little sister to become his accountant and I think overall kind of like his agent and manager and then it really renews their relationship and it helps him not get kicked out of his house. (laughs) But his life is kind of messy. He's working really hard. He's partying really hard. Now that he has enough money to live by himself, his house becomes the after party house. People are always over. He's always drinking. And he kind of comes to a crisis when he's supposed to style the Dolce & Gabbana fashion show for Milan. 
And three days before he's supposed to go out there, he has an after party where somebody steals his passport. And he's unable to get to Milan until a day before the show. And it's the first time in his life that he's like missed work because he's been partying so hard. He says he had taken a lot of liberties. Like at ID, he'd be on a shoot and he'd take a nap and stuff. Like it had been getting a bit messy, but this was like a change. And he decides right then and there he has to get sober. Yeah. So he just cold turkey quits drinking. He gets down to Milan for the Dolce & Gabbana show. I was quieter, sharper, more focused, even if I was basically white knuckling to get through it. He spends the next six months not talking to anybody because he's like, I don't know what to do. If I'm going to go out with someone, I don't know how to not drink. So the only way to stay sober and focused is to be by myself. Also, before he got sober, his relationship with Alex had fallen apart as well. And I don't think it was in the cleanest way. But then he goes to New York and a friend of his invites him out. And he's like, oh, I can't go out because I don't know how to not drink if I go out. And she introduces him to AA. And AA is a clarifying moment for him. He like develops the tools to look deeper to find out why he had such problems with alcohol, why he had such problems controlling his life, why he felt so lost. Through AA meetings and daily conversations with my sponsor, I began to understand how I managed or didn't manage all the insecurity, anger, rootlessness, and fear that I'd internalized. He also is not sober anymore. He says he'd spent 14 years sober going to AA, discovering himself. And now he's like, now that I've done inner work that I had never done before, I can have a drink. I'm fine. So I hope he's good. And in his steps through AA, he reached out to Uwe and apologized. He also reached out to Alec and they started emailing back and forth and they've been back together ever since. He also apologized to his mother and she says, don't be silly. I'm your mother. You don't have to apologize. Oh, his mom is very sweet. He also starts working with Steven Mizell, who he's obsessed with. There are like 40 pages about how Steve Mizell is like the genius of our generation, which is cool. If you are interested in that, you should read this book. But I don't think we need to get into it here. Yeah. And how intense it was to work for him and how nervous he was. He was working his way up. The world was noticing. More designers started reaching out for me to consult and style their advertising campaigns and runway shows. Giorgio Armani, Fendi, Valentino, Lanvin, Sonia Rachel, Comme des Garçons. The next logical step would be a call from American Vogue, who had a roster of contributing editors and stylists on board. But for some reason, the call didn't come. So then he's like bitching about it. He's like, I can't fucking believe Vogue doesn't want me. And then he's literally complaining about it to a friend when Grace Coddington calls and is like, hey, do you want to come in for a meeting? It turns out that Camilla Nickerson, who had been working in Vogue's fashion department with Grace, was leaving for W, thereby setting the fashion merry-go-round in motion and opening up a rare spot on American Vogue's elite roster. So he goes in almost sure he'll never get it. And he's like, you know what? It's just fun to be considered. That's the mindset. I'll go. I'll do my best. But it's not going to happen. He goes, he does great, and then he gets the job. He'll need to be in the American Vogue office for two weeks a month, pitching ideas, putting clothes together, getting them past Anna, and then I'd spend the other two weeks working on commercial jobs for money. He's still at ID at this point, right? I think this is when he leaves ID. American Vogue is a different animal from the international editions. Under Anna's tenure, the magazine transcended its role as straightforward media outlet to become an important fashion power broker. American Vogue does not celebrate creativity for creativity's sake. It tries to balance art and commerce. Just as Stephen molds stylists, Anna does too, but in a way that's very geared towards their impact on the industry's bottom line. American Vogue moves product and validates designer like almost nothing else. If one of the dresses you pull ends up running in the magazine, it's going to have a markedly different fate than if it doesn't make the cut. Which is why Anna and the fashion staff are rigorous about their curation, and the stories are generally shorter than Stephen's at Vogue Italia. So there's more pressure on each item and on each idea. At Vogue, I was no longer rebelling against commercial fashion like some indie mag kid. I was part of it. 
he, again, at American Vogue, continues his mission to reflect the world in the magazine. He's like, this magazine is so fucking white. It's crazy. He once again develops a reputation as the guy who shoots black girls. And he's like, good. Put them in the magazines. This is insane. He says Anna is quite receptive of his going to her and expressing that the way they shoot black women for American Vogue is not right. And the fashion industry as a whole is actually getting whiter and whiter. At Fashion Week 2007, they had to form a council and do a town hall meeting to be like, what the fuck is going on here? And he pitches an idea to Vogue Italia that he ends up collaborating with some of his friends, talking to Stephen, and they put together an entire issue that's now known as the Black Issue. The July 2008 edition of Vogue Italia, cover to cover, every shoot, every page would feature and celebrate Black people. Nothing like it had ever been done before. I remember thinking to myself, things would only change when we had black women in magazines every month in multiple stories with multiple points of view and styles and looks. This became my goal. I repeated it like a mantra. Get yourself into a position where one day you can make that happen yourself. So his career is going incredible. He's recognized. He's sober. He's putting out better work than he's ever put out before. And then he has like flare ups of his sickle cell. And like he just is constantly confronted with racism when doctors don't believe him. They think he's a junkie and just like on the hunt for morphine. You know, he doesn't say anything bad about American Vogue or Anna Wintour, but he's like really itching for a bigger, better platform. He feels frustrated that all of the times he's proved that putting black women on covers does sell magazines seems to still be just reduced to tokenism. The black issue should have killed off the stupid, tired adage that black girls on covers don't sell magazines, but I continue to hear it all the time anyway. I'd made some progress with my editorials, but I was itching for a bigger platform, one where I could create a vision of the world as I knew it to be, a bolder, more inclusive one. Then he is offered a position at W Magazine. He's like kind of become the guy for tonal upheavals. The guy who just says like, hey, the way things have always been done, shut up. At this point in culture, celebrities are on the cover of magazines, not models. Like times have really shifted. And he talks to the celebrity editor at W and they've come up with a plan to like really bring W Magazine, not necessarily back to reality, but like... I think it's like using fashion more as art than as commerce. Yes. Celebrity imagery had become ubiquitous and banal. Stefano, along with W celebrity editor Lynn Hirschberg and I decided it was time for a tonal transformation. This has always been one of my specialties. Major heavyweight movie stars wrangled by Lynn were willing to put themselves into my hands and let me radically overhaul them for the day. They were more than willing, actually. They were delighted, as it was often a huge boon to them, too. Also around this time, Alec comes to him and is like, have you heard of social media? I think you would like it. And so he gets on Twitter and Instagram, and he's able to communicate with up-and-coming fashion people. He says, you know, social media right now is people only talk about it in terms of how toxic and fucked up it is. But it did give us the ability to like stay in touch with voices from all over the world. He also says this is the first time he realizes how much his work has impacted the younger generations. And I think as somebody who's for so long kind of aligned himself with like the vanguard and the forefront and the youth, I think it was very rewarding for him to see like now he has become the foundation that people look up to and admire. Yeah, he's also able to use it to just like put steam behind movements and to like give a voice to certain issues, he is seated in the second row of Fashion Week and he's like, I'm the fucking editor of W Magazine. This is disgraceful. And it gets a lot of steam. I mean, it is so messed up the way he's treated in certain areas of the fashion industry still. He starts to receive awards like the Frederick Douglass Award and ultimately an award from the Queen. And it's like he's finally at this position in his life where he's really seeing that he has made it. 
Which I think is difficult for someone who has often suffered from imposter syndrome. He has a realization. He said, God, my life is going so well, too well. Something must happen. And then he has like a sudden case of tinnitus, which is just a constant ringing in your ears. And for some people, it's unbearable. He says he constantly suffers from over-internalizing things. So he gets tinnitus and he's like, what have I done to deserve this? Like, what did I do that brought this upon myself? And it is a really difficult way to look at health. So he simultaneously, his health is declining, but his career has never been hotter. He goes to the White House. Dr. Dre's company Beats, alongside with Nick Knight, wants to do a series of short films that celebrates his 25 years in the industry, The Seven Deadly Sins of Edward Enfill. And as they are shooting it, he starts to lose vision. And it turns out his retina is detaching. And if he is not able to get to the best eye doctors in the world, he could possibly be blinded in both eyes. This begins like a year-long process of four separate surgeries on his retina to try to reattach it so that he doesn't lose vision forever, which of course really impacts his ability to work because if he can't see, he can't style. Yeah. And it impacts his ability to go about his life because he's not slowing down. He has a period where he was much quieter in his career while he recovered from a couple of the eye surgeries. But for a while, he would like get out of surgery and get on a plane. It's really scary. I feel like when you've created this speed and like been so rewarded for it, it's so hard to say like, if I step away for six months to recover, will it be here when I get back? But I would say yes. Of course it will be. But he never found out. He never stepped away for long enough to check. All of his friends were calling to make sure he was okay, to tell him to slow down. He name drops Rihanna a lot, which, you know, I would too. And in the midst of these healings and surgeries, his mother passes away. I didn't know how to handle any more loss. Immediately, the self-recrimination kicked in. I bitterly regretted not having been around more to have forced my mother to do her physical therapy. He blames himself. He says if I had been there, she would have done it, even though she like would cry and refuse. Like if I had said it, she would have done it. Which, of course, we don't know if that was true. But he has a lot of regret about the last... I think few decades, honestly. I think from the time he was 18, they never really got close again. The one silver lining is that in going to the funeral in Accra in Ghana, he was able to kind of like revisit his roots. And although him and his father are not in a good place, they went from steely silence to he prioritized going back and visiting his brothers and sisters. And when his dad was there, they could share memories of his mom. Yeah. So it kind of melted the ice. Yeah, it feels like his relationship with his dad has been softening over the last few years. He also started going to therapy in his 50s. Somebody suggested he go talk to somebody. And he was like, it was the first time I really looked at the way I handled pain and trauma and my negative thought patterns. And using CBT, he was able to kind of control the way that he defends himself. Mm -hmm. So then the wheels are in motion on another major development in his career. He's told that he's going to get a phone call. He ends up getting the most excellent order of the British Empire for services to diversity in fashion. And it's like this huge deal. There's just party after party. He's celebrated by the queen. He's celebrated by his friends. They have this beautiful lunch that Naomi Campbell sets up at her hotel for the family. And then they like rent out some cool members only club and everybody in fashion shows up from his dad to Madonna. Yeah. And I think it's a title. Like, I think he's like Edward Enninful M.E.O. Wow. I mean, that's what he came up as when I was Googling him. So I think that that's like a thing. Again, I'm sorry to the British. Anyway, it is interesting. There's careers here. There are people who are like living their lives. You can't be responsible for everyone's bullshit. But it is so interesting when you read these memoirs about, you know, certain career paths where they like really celebrate the people around them. And they're like, this person has always been so nice. And they go so out of their way to be like, Naomi Campbell has always been my rock. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think Naomi Campbell may have caused a lot of hurt to a lot of people. And it's also interesting as somebody who has really dedicated his life to inclusion to then also be like, the best guys, Dolce and Gabbana. You know what I mean? Yeah. He also talks about Alexander McQueen and his relationship with him and how him and Alexander McQueen were like enemies because he called Alexander McQueen racist. And Alex came to try to defend himself and Edward wouldn't even hear it. And then they became like good friends. Interesting. Yeah. And again, like not everyone has responsibility. And I think overall, he's got a most excellent order for diversity in fashion. Like he has done incredible work and continues to do incredible work. But it's just something interesting. Around this time, it's 2016. And I don't know if you guys remember, but that was some dark times. It obviously as an immigrant to England when Brexit was passed, it was such a blow, such a like a final moment of this like long march towards divisiveness and racism in that country. And then to come back to the US and then have Donald Trump be elected. It was a very hard time politically for him. And I think it really made him think like, what else can be done? Experience had taught me that at moments of crisis, silence was no longer an option. I felt empowered to speak out, but also compelled to. Then he gets the call or an email, actually, that Alex Shulman is leaving Vogue and he is up for conversation. So the whole fashion industry is a buzz because Alex Shulman has been at Vogue for 27 years. As editor-in-chief, the Anna Wintour of British Vogue. He's like barely mentioned in these conversations in the press. Everyone is a buzz with who's going to replace Alex Shulman. And people are not really mentioning him. And he goes in with just like a radical proposal. His three tenants are reflection, which meant protecting and evolving Vogue's legacy of excellence, documentation, or showing the world around us in its real diversity and dynamism and projection, or imagining what could be possible in the future. And this blows them the fuck away. They're like, we've never heard anything like it. And, you know, it starts to leak that he's a contender and people are like kind of losing their minds. And then it's him. He becomes the editor-in-chief of British Vogue. He always thought he would take over Vogue Italia, but he's like, no, I have an opportunity here with British Vogue to change the fashion landscape. And I will say, I don't know that much about fashion or Vogue culture, but I think he has. I feel like for the past couple of years, it's been like the understood thing that like American Vogue is stuck in quicksand, just like doing its daily duty. And British Vogue is like where the cool shit's happening. Yes. So sorry, Anna. He comes in guns blazing and it's selling. He's changing things up. He shakes things up hard and he says, you know, it wasn't entirely my fault. Like usually when a new editor in chief comes in, you bring in new personnel. There was also layoffs set to be happening like from the top. So it seemed like I like went absolutely batshit. I didn't, but he did change things up quite a bit. He brought energy to British Vogue and it sold. People were into it. I think people are still really into it. I think I'm going to take a gander at this final issue. It kind of ends with just all of these covers that he's done and how they've all been so successful. And every time he's taken a risk, it's been rewarded. During the pandemic, he even did a landscape issue where all of the covers were different landscapes commissioned by painters and photographers. I don't know when Vogue has ever not had even a person on it, but it was like they became collectibles and it asked people to engage with us and share their landscapes and stuff. So he's really done some different things and it's paid off. Yeah. He has since this book has come out retired from that role. Well, he like graduated from that role. So it was announced that he is leaving British Vogue, but I looked into it to see what that meant. And he's now like the global head of something at all of the Vogue's. So I'm excited to see what that means long term. I think there's a lot of gossip in that world about what's coming next. And the big rumor is that he is going to replace Anna Wintour. Oh, my gosh. Which would be fucking sick as hell. So stay tuned. 
And final thoughts, Ashley? I think that if you are interested in fashion and culture, this is like a must read. I really enjoyed it. I think it was so interesting. I think that it was just like an enjoyable book to read and I learned a lot. Yeah, I found it very accessible mm-hmm. and very straightforward. When the names were used, there was a lot of explanation about what they added to the world, what they were known for, why they were important in a way that as somebody who didn't know a lot of the names, it was very interesting and readable. And it also just had that like really fun, buzzy 90s fashion party energy. Mm-hmm. What's not to love about that? Yeah, it was a good celebrity memoir. But I feel like the question is, who are you and how did you get to where you are? And he goes, here's the answer. So how fertile would you consider this soil? 4.5. I would say it's like such an interesting story and there's a lot in here. I will say it's not like the most poetic memoir I've ever read. It feels very celebrity memoir-ish in that it is quite like, here is the story of how I got there. Yeah. Whereas I would say like there's like celebrity memoirs and there's like nonfiction. Yeah. I would say this is more celebrity memoir than nonfiction, but I actually really appreciated that. I liked just learning. It is a good story. He is somebody who should have written a memoir and he did. So thank you. Totally. However, I would have loved for him to wait for a few years so that we could find out the rest of this Vogue drama. I know. I really want to know. I feel like this was kind of, he was like, well, I got time in the pandemic and I'm making less money than I had been as the editor-in-chief of British Vogue. So we'll just get this out there. How many worm teenies would you say you would have with him? I think I would be very intimidated, to be honest. Same. I think I would need like three just to say hi. (laughs) I just feel like I would want to meet him as a fan. I just feel like he hangs out with a a real high caliber of person who's quite intellectual. And I would feel nervous showing up in my god-awful outfit being like, um... (laughs) Okay, he is someone that I would love to meet in person. I think he seems incredible. But he's someone that I would like to like be at a medium-sized dinner party with. Where like he and I are maybe not necessarily having a one-on-one conversation, but I can like hear him having conversation. I would like to like be a PA on his set. Yeah. I think he's somebody I would like like to watch work. I would like to watch him work. I'd like to like listen to him discuss. I would love to watch him do research. I'm very curious about his research strategy. I don't feel that in conversation with him, I would ask good questions. That's how I feel. Yeah. It would be like a charitable thing of him to talk to me. And I'd rather just not talk at all and read the memoir than be like, obviously the dummy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like not necessarily a problem I would have with Tori Spelling, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much. We'll see you soon. And who do we love most of all? Oh, we love our five-star reviewing wormies. Thank you, Mao and Bear22. You are the cutest, cuddliest little bear. Absolutely just right. Thank you. Dustin, Dustin checks in. Dunstan, I believe, actually was what it was, was the first movie I ever loved. So I appreciate you, Dustin, Dunstan, and the like. Shelby in the city, I hope you are enjoying the city, but I am grateful you are enjoying this podcast. I love you. I appreciate you. See you soon. Nat Attack 3001, you are the top tier version of a Nat Attack that I've ever met. The 2001 can't even compare. Thank you, Goose. 1151, you are the goofiest goose I've ever met, and I love you. Kale Moss, you are the sweetest green I've ever seen. Thank you, K-E-A-K-W. This review gets a W from me. That's all for this week. I love you guys. I appreciate you, and I will see you next week.